Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. On today's show... After the UK government's high court loss, we discuss a couple of other Brexit-based court cases. We also discuss the winners and losers and the impact of a weak political opposition. As always, I'm joined with Christian Spence and Alex Davis in the North's beating commercial heart, Manchester. How are we, gents? I'm well, thank you. Very good, thanks. Right, well, I think we should get into the subject today, which is the winners and losers. Before we do that, though, let's just talk a little bit about the political division. Um, how do you see the, the parties shaping up, and how do you see their views on, on, on Brexit changing since, since the votes? I think, it's, I think it's interesting, really, because we never had, you know, the... The whole objective around Brexit, this you know national referendum, which is, I mean, it's not something the UK does. I think people sort of forget this. We've had a flurry of them recently with the, the Scottish independence referendum, uh, that referendum back in 2011 on whether we should change our voting system to the mm. alternative vote. We've had the EU one, of course, um, last year. Before those three, the only other one the UK has ever held was on whether we stayed in the EU back in 1975. That's it. We didn't do referenda in well, this country as a whole. We did do um, Welsh devolution and Scottish devolution. Well, that's it. But none of those are you know, full-blown national no, referenda no. across the whole country. And so these things, you know, they don't kind of sit very naturally in the, in the UK political psyche. And of course, you end up then that actually bar, you know, sort of I mean, UKIP as being the obvious one. You don't actually have party allegiances sat directly behind each of the campaigns. Uh, so yes, Labour's official position eventually settled on that they were that, that they were in favour of Remain, but there was a big Labour Leave contingent uh, in mm. Parliament and, and across their membership. Um, the Tories said I think we said this in a podcast a few weeks ago, you know, the bizarrely we have this um, this situation now where the Conservatives are united on Europe um, yeah. or at least appear broadly united. Well at least um, there's a majority. Yeah, that's it. So that, that, you know, they've got the majority in Parliament. Um, they're broadly united on the direction in which things are going. There, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of debate on what that detail looks like. Um, then, you know, Lib Dems had a very firm uh, Remain position, as did the SNP. But 
that doesn't really translate into the voting public. So you've still got lots of people who are, you know, traditional Conservative voters who could have gone either way in the referendum and did. Same thing for for Labour and other parties. So it's it's an it's an all a very very odd mix. It's not the kind of politics we're used to. And I think the big legacy of that has been the fact that because Leave isn't a political party, the Leave campaign isn't a political party. Um, there's actually once you say congratulations, you've won. Um, who implements it? Yeah. And what does that look like? And that kind of is the the big legacy which we're all wrestling with now. Do you think we've accidentally stumbled into a golden age of political engagement by accident because of these referendums? Um, potentially, uh, I, th- I think I think potentially you're right, and I think there's a lot more interest in politics just by people on the street and and business people in particular now than there has been before. But I think it's it's also because that things have kind of got a bit crazy. Um, um, it, I, I don't. In terms of productive politics, I'm not. I'm not sure how much we're going to achieve over the next few years. It seems like Brexit's going to basically take up all the capacity that we've got. Um, a lot of people would argue that there's maybe better things that we could be getting on with. Um, and I, so I think that people have got interested in politics potentially just because politics has has got a bit more kind of exciting. Uh, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess. It, I guess exciting. Um, uh, potentially worrying as well. Um, <laughs> And so I guess maybe it feels like there's a bit more at stake um, and there's a, there's a bit more kind of debate going on. And so I definitely think political engagement has gone up, um, but for the right reasons, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it seems to be, as the levels of political engagement have gone up, and I'm, I'm certain that this has happened because for the first time in a long time, we've got the rise in membership of political parties, which I can't remember. I mean, as a society in the whole, participation of clubs, civic membership, all this sort of stuff is falling. So to have this almost counter reaction has been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it has, and they said you know, you know Labour particularly, I think, have boasted about the, the big rise in, in in their membership on the back of uh, on the back of the Corbyn um, of the Corbyn election. Um, yeah, but I think as Alex says, you, there's a tension here between actually people are interested. Are they interested just because there is one very big thing? going on and I think you know you've, you've seen the legacy of that I think in Scotland on the back of the independence vote mm. uh, that actually the whole of the dynamic of their political system has shifted post that and that's you know another big challenge for Labour as to how all that's fallen but yeah it's you know we're, we're still not quite in party alignment territory here you know so people are interested in the Brexit issue which is causing interest in politics but I'm not sure that's actually translating into you know necessarily political parties and how they function. It, it, it almost strikes me as a the political, the extra political engagement, if that's what it is, is unstitching very delicate coalitions which have never needed to mean much, you know, in the last ten years because actually the political landscape's been rather bland. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a difficult one, and, and it, obviously what what appears to be happening is that we're kind of losing our effective opposition, almost, and it, it, it's kind of it's kind of because obviously we've got a conservative government, but the conservatives have have, have been. The only kind of party which have really had a coherent view on this whole thing. And then whether you think that view is right or whether it lines up with what Leave was meant to be or what Leave voters voted for is another issue. But just the fact that the, the, the Tories have done a, a pretty decent job of coming together and, and kind of putting a strategy forward, whereas the other parties have, have not been doing so well, have kind of struck their own divisions within themselves. Um, it, it's, it's led to a very interesting situation, but I, I think a lot of people would argue not a good one for politics overall, um, with the Conservatives potentially having a mandate almost for anything that they want, um, simply because the opposition is, isn't really doing its job very very effectively. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. As more people get involved, the effectiveness of the opposition has declined to, all, well, 
as weak as I can remember it. Yes, I think it's a long time. I think you're certainly back to to the early 2000s when the when the Conservatives were still unraveling themselves from the from the yeah. landslide uh, defeat um, against Tony Blair's government. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, Labour. I think we talked about this in earlier podcasts. Labour have got themselves into into that odd position that you know they. I mean, all political parties are are coalitions within themselves. Mm. You know, there's a very broad spectrum of views. Even within one party, um, that applies to them all. Uh, Labour has had this sort of growing tension um, between what you might huge generalisations here: the Liberal Metropolitan vote, and particularly the London, uh, you know, the, the, the you know, Corbynite yeah. North London one. Corbyn Easters, exactly. And then the, the sort of it's, it's very traditional working class base in you know northern post-industrial cities. Big generalisation, but broadly, those two poles have kind of been slowly drifting apart for a while very similar in the way to the way that the the pro-european and the anti-european um sways of the conservative party were doing um throughout you know the, the tail end of the thatcher government and, and into majors and you know there were some big questions asked of of the tories around european policy back then and those were the things that formed that big knife that fractured the party made it unelectable in many ways uh, and it was out of power of course for, for a long time under tony blair my gut instinct on this is that Corbyn has managed to find that niche and get a knife in there and has managed to fra- do that fracture for the Labour Party. Um, that it's now got two chunks of its party, one which is highly globalised, um, often you know top end of the social spectrum, better paid, liberal, looks out globally. Um, is you know, able to take advantage of all the opportunities that you know, potentially globalisation the big service economy delivers. And it's traditional working class vote who many, actually not unreasonably, you know, we still, you know, we, people talk about recovery from the 2008 recession. There are still districts across some of those legacy cities and, and towns who are waiting for some sign of recovery from the 1980s recession. You know, that's not unreasonable. Um, and I think those people have questioned, you know, what their role is, Parties of different colours and flavours have come and gone over the past 20 years, but from their point of view, nothing really appears to have changed. And so, you know, is the vote, le- is leave, is that leave vote actually against the EU and a desire to leave, or is it just this is our one opportunity to send a message that we want things to be different? We don't know how we want them to be different or what that should look like, but actually, this is one great chance to give the establishment a kicking. Quick question then How does the opposition, whoever it may be, effectively oppose government policy on the EU and Brexit without seeming anti-British? It's a difficult one. Um, I think this probably comes back to the will of the people idea and exactly what the will of the people is. Um, (laughs) What is the will of the people? (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's one which I wrestle with because... You, obviously you can make the argument that what was on the ballot paper was, was what the referendum was about and it's about whether we leave the EU or not and that's it but the mandate seems to be this kind of constantly shifting beast um, as, to, as to what the will of the people exactly is and obviously now lots of MPs are arguing that the will of the people was we have to be outside the single market we have to be outside the customs union um, various other things and I, I, I definitely know that that's, that's not true there are, there are definitely portions of the leave vote which are pro-immigration, pro-single market. Um, uh, they're often called liberal leavers, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this question of the will of the people becomes quite a difficult one um, because it seems to be quite an easy way to shut down the type of debate which you're talking about. I mean, when, when the opposition is, is trying to oppose maybe the strategy that the government's gone with, it's very easy to just come back and say, well, you're, you know, you're subverting the will of the people. 
Um, but, so I, I find it quite a frustrating phrase because it, it kind of is just a way to shut arguments down, I feel, at this point. And I don't think anyone really knows what the will of the people is. I don't think that all the voters voted for the same reasons. Um, mm. and, so, and so it's quite a difficult one. It, it's, it's maybe uh, kind of hampering productive debate in the Commons, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, so we've heard a lot of rhetoric from the from the Conservatives particularly, and he, actually even under Ed Miliband, just as a, um, when he was leader of the Labour Party, his concept of kind of one-nation politics, and, mm. you know, trying to unite the, dis- the disparate parts. I, I sound to be slightly disappointed, as Alex has said, with, you know, the, the quality of debate, well, I mean, the quality of debate pre-referendum was, was broadly shocking from all parties. I think we're all agreed on that. Um, post-debate, it's still this highly polarised bit, and, you know, there are some, you know, ardent remainers, um, uh, but not only from that sector, who say, you know, what about the 48? What about the 48%? We are the 48%. We have a view here as well. Mm. Um, and I think that's an important point that's slight, that is still slightly being missed here. You know, it's, you know, the, the great analogy in LMP um, relayed this to me. He said, you know, I was elected with by, you know, 45% of my constituents, but I'm here to represent the views of 100% of them. Um, and whilst, yes, fine, the will of the people, as, as much as we know it, you know, all we do know is a, under the rules that are currently applied in the system, a majority of the British people voted to leave the European Union. That's, that is all we know of the will of the people. Um, but that doesn't mean we, it doesn't mean the 48% are, are ignored. Mm. You know, there, are, there are important cases from both sides. Parts of the Remain campaign are mad and bonkers. Parts of the Leave campaign are mad and bonkers. Both sides also have good, useful things to contribute. Um, and it's now for me about how we try and weave that path which joins that together because we don't really know what the will of the people is. Going back uh, just very, very quickly to the opposition, something which uh, Christian mentioned to me in a conversation we had prior to the podcast, the idea that the main opposition isn't going to come from political parties within the UK, but maybe the European Commission. Yeah, I, th- I think it was from a, from a press article I read a while ago, but it did resonate. Um, I mean, certainly we've talked already about, you know, you know Labour's in a, in a difficult position at the moment. Um, it's still not really clear. You know, it's you know, it's pro-Brexit in the sense that its MPs on the whole voted the, voted the second reading of the bill through Parliament recently. But it's still not really defined what it wants to see Brexit be. Mm. So I think there's that, that big gap there. To be fair, I'm not entirely sure the Conservatives have got that either. You know, there's still a lot of infighting about exactly what all this looks like. We have Theresa May's 12-point strategy, but some of those bits are a bit vague. So the question is, yeah, as Theresa May and you know, Alex said, you've always got like an unlimited mandate at the moment. There is, yeah. You can just pretty much get on with what they want um, without a check. That's not good for democracy, frankly. You know, a, a strong opposition is a crucial part of, of how you run these systems. So, yeah, so as we go into this debating point, actually, yeah, I'm increasingly of the opinion the big... The, big, the single biggest thing which will shape the way the Conservatives and the government start to handle this negotiation is going to be the EU. Um, you know, by nature of the process so far, Parliament has had limited say in shaping the white paper. There's, you know, as we're talking now, there's a few weeks to go before the bill finally comes out of the Commons at the other end. Out of Parliament at the other end, and we'll know if you know, Parliament has willed that there should be other things considered in there. But broadly, they're saying to Theresa, uh, to Theresa May, go to Europe and deliver Brexit. Yeah, I mean, and that's really vague. Yeah, so, certainly, as Brexit's going to en- encompass basically everything that British politics is over the next few years, it, it definitely feels like the, the Commission's going to be the opposition in some sense. I mean, I think at this point we don't quite have a coherent view of what 
the EU's view is on these negotiations, if you know what I mean, because there's there's articles coming out every day with this guy says, oh, we're going to give you a 60 billion bill, and then some other guy from another country will say, oh, actually, we're going to be really nice to you, and <laughs> yeah. Barnier will come out and say one thing, and it's, so it, it kind of feels like there's not quite a coherent view yet, and I'm sure that that view will form when the negotiations happen, but certainly one way in which they're providing an opposition, which I think is quite funny, is that... We're kind of trying to hold our, well, Theresa May and the government in particular is trying to hold its cards close to its chest and is trying to kind of retain these negotiating uh, kind of tools. But every time that we actually go over there and talk to anyone from the EU, they basically just come out and tell everyone what we've said anyway. <laughs> um, and, and so I, 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 don't, I don't quite know how this strategy is going to work, that we're going to kind of keep things back in order to use them as negotiating tools. Because I think, to be honest, once we do go into those negotiations, it's going to be really hard to keep secret what's been said. Um, and in that way, it, it, it's, it's kind of going to be like an open forum opposition, if you're not. It's really interesting. That. So do you think actually there is no point in keeping it secret? Let's just publish it now and then see how it goes. Yeah, it, it's a really difficult one. I mean, the, the, the big example for me is the whole no deal's better than a bad deal. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's really tricky because I, I totally get it. I totally get the idea that we have to go in and say we're prepared to walk away. But at the same time, I'm struggling to see who is not looking at that as a bluff. Mm. Um, partic- particularly, um, in the, in talking about the people who are going to be doing the negotiations, they, they, they must know that that's quite an extreme position to take. And, and so... I. And the other one is the whole thing around the rights of EU citizens who are currently in the UK. Um, I mean, certainly it it, it sort of looks to us like we've tried to sort this out and there was a bit of pushback from the EU. Um, And but there's obviously an argument to be made that why don't we just do it now and just, you know, be be the big man almost and and just secure those rights of those people now and get rid of that card. Um, And and so I I really don't know how it's going to work. I'm not I'm not sure that the government is knows how it's going to work at this point either. I, I think, yeah, exactly. All, all of the above, as it were. I think the, the challenge on this kind of playing your cards closely chess, which is you know, normally hugely important, you know, lots of people listening who've done business deals, you don't sort of publicise where your red lines are too heavily. I think the one thing that's missing in all of this is, you know, it's, one of, it's been one of the areas where we've pushed back against some of the more vocal sides of the Leave campaign, is this is difficult, and don't underestimate how much power the EU27, the other nations in the EU, except us, have in all of this. You know, mm. it is. You know, it really is us on one side of the table and the twenty-seven on the other, and also that actually, you know, the lead negotiators, the lead negotiator for the EU themselves, the lead negotiators for the Commission and for those countries, know the EU system, and not only do they know it in the same way we do, broadly they know it better than we do because actually they get their hands dirty in it much more than UK politicians and civil servants do. So the idea that we have any negotiating strategy or any subtle points that the EU doesn't already know about is kind of meaningless in all this. You know, with it, oh, we're not going to tell them we have particular strengths in financial services because we do all the euro clearing bonds. They know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a mystery, um, is it? So it's not, I said, who are you keeping this from? Because apparently, actually, the only people you're really hiding from is the people who already know it. Absolutely right, actually. It strikes me as, since these European negotiations are about to start, 
It's made Parliament look, for the last 10 years, like it's just been a bunch of parochial squabbles about pocket money. And now I feel like I'm about to get a lot of value out of the salaries of my politicians, which uh, is a very refreshing change. Yeah, I, I certainly hope we will. I mean, one of the lines I've used, I've used recently, you know, is you know, the, the, this debate about should, you know, should, the, should all this go before Parliament, should MPs get to debate and discuss it, all this thing. Yeah, as a matter of principle, we'll say, yes, you know, they, they, are, they are elected to do all this on our behalf. The whole point of a representative democracy is we don't all individually have to do this. But I think there's a lot of, there's a, still a colossal amount of upskilling needed of our representatives to make sure they know enough about the topic they're going into. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are literally a handful in each house who have shown that they've started doing some serious work over the past year and get to grips with that. There are still lots who... Every time there is an opportunity for speeches, the same platitude in the speeches come from the same people saying the same things we've heard about, which just don't move the debate on. That's mm. the problem, you know. Debates about whether the EU is good or bad, about freedom, etc., are now broadly irrelevant. Yeah. We now well, need to move into the real detail technicality. Now, the details and technicalities are, are interesting because it's almost as if you're bowing to the European system by being immersed in the details of Europe, surely we want to conduct negotiations on some sort of middle ground or even better on our ground. Yeah, except the point is we're not. The negotiations are going to take place on the EU's ground because they are the dominant partner in this relationship. Mm. Um, they are the people we are seeking to, you know, to walk away from. Um, there's a wonderful blog a little while ago by uh, by a commentator in the FT called David Allen Green, who you know, if anyone listening, if you don't follow, him, go and, go and hunt him out. He's been a great commentator on the on the whole Brexit process. And he said, you know, the other thing to look at from the EU's point of view is the kind of conversation over the past 40, 50 years between the UK and us has been us asking to join, them saying no, us asking again, <laughs> them saying no, us asking again, well, all right then. Um, and then us pushing forward for things like single market, us pushing forward for freedom of movement, saying you, you should deliver this, and they do. And then we say, but that's great, but actually we want opt-outs from the euro. And they go, well, okay, here you are. And we want opt-outs from social policy. Okay, you know, big negotiations, fine Britain, here you are, we've given you everything you wanted. And we go, that's great. Bye. And so actually, you know, we've, we've not exactly worked a great relationship with the EU over 30 or 40 years. So that's going to, you know, those tempers, I suspect, are those and private negotiations. Yeah, for the amount of scepticism in the UK about the EU, it is remarkable how much we've shaped the EU. And I think it's, it's underestimated. I think the Leave campaign has missed this. You know, a lot of the things we, you know, we you know, the Leave campaign has complained about, you know, single market and freedom of movement of people, we were at the forefront uh, of delivering that. It caused the huge fracture in the major government when, when Maastricht went through with all of those things, but we were there. Um, huge chunks of the EU's environmental policy is based on, on UK drafting. Huge amounts of the employment law across the UK, across the EU is, is based on UK law. You know, we were at the forefront of shaping all of this. Um, second largest economy in the EU, second largest contributor to the budget. We have influence. That's that's undoubtedly true. The Leave campaign would say, do we have influence in the right areas, and you know, can we shape it away from its ultimate goal um, of you know complete political and economic union? Well, earlier I spoke about getting value for money out of my politicians, which I quite like. Let's talk about a set of politicians who we don't believe we get much value for money out of. The House of Lords. Can someone just quickly tell me what's going on here? Yes, so the court case which happened a few weeks ago uh, essentially was around whether Theresa May can use royal prerogative to revoke Article 50 of her own accords and the government can do it without any parliamentary involvement um, or whether there has to be a parliamentary vote on whether we can invoke Article 50. 
Um, that went to the High Court and the government lost. Um, it's since then appealed and we were kind of the opinion of why would you do this? It kind of seems like, again, an extra drain on resources and time that potentially you don't need. Um, but again, they appealed um, and lost that again. And now it's, it's I, I mean... It's it's one of it's one of three kind of cases going through. Um, but the, in terms of the House of Lords, what we're seeing now in the House of Lords is the Brexit bill going through, which is the uh, what's it called notification of notification withdrawal. All one hundred and thirty-seven words of it. Yeah, one of the shortest <laughs> yeah. pieces of legislation on the statute book. Quite incredible. Uh, yeah. So so it has to go through a, a, a set of different processes. And the first the first one of those was going through the House of Commons, and uh, MPs had the chance to table amends. So essentially, they can insert new lines or new little paragraphs in it, which say specific things. For example, when we invoke Article Fifty, we'll also secure the rights of EU citizens here. Things like that. Um, and it, got, and it got through that process unscathed, the bill, actually. Yeah, it's it's ended up in the House of Lords without any amendments. Yes, yeah, so it's exactly as it was on day one. Um, but then the system is that it moves through into the House of Lords. And uh, it's, it's generally seen that the House of Lords is where things could get tricky and where the amendments are much more likely to be put in place. Um, the issue there is that if the, if the Lords decide to put any amendments into the bill, which we expect that they probably will, then what happens is then it goes back to the Commons... And then the Commons will probably say, no, we didn't want this before and we don't want it now. We're taking it back out. And then it goes back to the Lords and they say, actually, we do want it. And the process is called a ping pong. And we're not certain how long this process will take, but we suspect it'll go back maybe two or three times between the, between the two. Um, because the, the Lords have basically said that they understand that they would be seen to be, again, frustrating this will of the people if, if this process goes on for too long and it ends up pushing back Article 50. No. I know nothing about parliamentary process, but is there not a mechanism which Parliament can basically circumvent the Lords? There is, yeah. There's a piece of legislation called the Parliament Act, yes, um, which uh, essentially allows uh, allows a, uh, a government in the House of Commons um, to essentially force its legislation through, and, and to essentially requires the House of Lords to comply. By convention, it is not used. It's seen as a bit of a grenade moment. Um, mm. It's not used frequently. I think the most recent one was with the hunting bill. Um, if you're going to use grenade, it sounds more reasonable to use it for Brexit than hunting. Yeah, and I think the challenge here is the there's another you know the Parliament is steeped in all of these ancient and peculiar conventions. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, something called the Salisbury Convention, um, which is as I said, is nothing more than a convention. It's, it doesn't it's, there's no legal binding there. What that does is essentially says the House of Lords will, will not actually frustrate manifesto commitments of the mm. government. So it might well delay them. It might go through extended ping pong, but fundamentally. If there's a manifesto commitment there, then they will eventually let it through. Although they might seek to, you know, tidy it up, make improvements if they see if they see fit. Um, as I said the, the the Parliament Act itself is a bit of a grenade. The question here is, you're back again to the will of the people. Mm. So actually, because you know, you know, we had this huge issue of, particularly when that first court case was brought and Article 50, you're trying to frustrate the will of the people. Um, it's all a nightmare. Well, but, but what is it exactly? What have we asked for? The referendum in UK law is meaningless. It is nothing more than an opinion poll in, in legal terms. It doesn't have any weight at all. All you've done is ask the people their opinion. They've given it you. It's now up to Parliament to decide what it does with that. And you know, I think from a legal point of view, this is, you know, I talked about the lack of knowledge of MPs in, in this area. The fact that neither the House of Commons or the House of Lords thought that there was a problem with the original bill, which because it didn't tell you what to do, 
Yeah. In the event that you've got to remain or a leave vote. So then just never thought about it. Um, and that's kind of why we're in those situations. So, no, the, the, I think the challenge for the Lords is they would like to make their voices heard on a couple of key issues. I think the big one we're going to see is residual rights for, for EU citizens here. They won't. They might slow it down by a week or two. They won't seek to stop it. And there's, you know, there's this grey area about just because it's a referendum, does that mean you know, it trumps parliamentary um, parliamentary, uh, the way Parliament normally works. The question is, no, it doesn't, because despite everything you heard in the run-up to the uh, campaign, Parliament is still sovereign, uh, and it is sovereign over the people. Well, I've got on my little sheet here a question, what did Gina Miller achieve? But actually, we're a few weeks past that, so I don't want to talk about that. We're going to skip straight on, and I want to talk about some other court cases. There's one in particular going through the Irish High Court. First of all, what is this court case, and why is it in Ireland? Okay, look, uh, so this is being brought by a private QC called Jolly Mulm, uh, and it's asking the question, is Article 50 revocable? Now, that okay. sounds sort of terribly dull and terribly dry. Uh, and I'll try and summarise why it's important. So we're going through, a tr- in, in many ways, you can see Brexit is an international treaty. It will involve changes to international treaties to, to deliver it. So what happens when you're doing those kind of negotiations is exactly the same if you're a businessman doing a negotiation with with another business. So you are sat in where you are today. For us, that's as a member of the EU. You go through some negotiations uh, with the other side. You come up with a draft deal. You now either, between you, agree it or dismiss it. If you agree it, the terms of that new deal are valid and off you go. If you don't like it and you, uh, and you, you dismiss it, you both go back to where you were before the conversation started. The world hasn't changed. The challenge of Article 50 and the way it's drafted is you've got this artificial two-year deadline built in there. And what that says is you serve your notice, you hand in your resignation letter to the, to the EU, you, have a, you go through all your negotiations. If you get a deal away within two years, that deal becomes, is, is implemented immediately. You don't have to let the two years run. If you haven't got a deal at the end of the two years, you can either try and extend it, but you'll need unanimous vote for that, all 28 member states. And if you don't get to extend it, then the UK will leave the European Union on the two-year And day. is that the same as no deal? That's the no deal option, essentially. Now, why that's important in this case is, essentially, that description I had of, you know, two businesses doing a deal. It doesn't work like this now, because under Article 50, we are where we are. We try and agree a new deal to take us forward. If we agree, it, we go forward with it. If we don't, the status quo is no longer on the table. We can't come back to where we are today. Right. The options on the table are actually the new deal or no deal. So, Not no deal status quo, no deal, you are out of the EU. And this is then where this question of, is it revocable? So actually, if when we hand our resignation letter in, you know, Theresa May is hoping to do it in, in March, if we hand that in, can at any point during that two years, can we stop that process? If we can, actually, that probably strengthens the UK's negotiating hand. Because what you can say is, actually, we can drag this out for as long as you like. We don't like the deal you're offering us. We'll stay put. Thank you very much. Um, if it's not revocable, all of a sudden the EU has a very strong hand in the negotiations. Because uh, it would say, if we can't get a deal away in two years, you're out and gone. So, anyway, for all this reason, um, there's this case being brought in the Irish High Court, just to keep it out of the UK system. But it's uh, but within uh, EU jurisdiction so after we leave. actually... A UK citizen taking 
a case to the Irish High Court. Yeah, okay. which sounds odd, but of course, don't forget, UK citizens are EU citizens. So it is a UK, an EU citizen taking a case to one of the EU member states' high courts. Uh, and presumably, if it is found to be revocable, we've got all sorts of fireworks then when the EU appeal this. They're, well, the, the, I think the challenge is what we probably expect is that the Irish High Court will say we don't have the competency to rule on this and there is only one court that has the power to rule over EU treaties and that that is the European Court of Justice Uh, and so it might be referred there. Now that's fine, The the ECJ have said we probably wouldn't be able to hear it for six or nine months which potentially delays things and also there's kind of the political challenge here that you know potentially Theresa May's Brexit uh, and her desire to get outside the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice is being held up while she waits for a case at the European Court of Justice. Brilliant. Have we got any more court cases ongoing? Uh, yeah um, there's, there is another one which is quite interesting and I think it, it kind of highlights an interesting point which you can bring back to the one that Christian was just talking about but also more widely um, The other one which uh, went to the High Court uh, a few weeks ago is uh, around, basically, when we invoke Article 50, do we also uh, invoke our... Do we also signal that we want to leave the single market at the same time? Um, So I'll I'll try and explain this. So we are members of the EU, but we're also members of the European Economic Area. And it's possible for us to exit the EU, but maintain our membership of the EEA, thereby maintaining our membership of the single market. Now, to leave the EU, written into the EU's, uh, EU treaties is Article 50, as we know, which uh, is, is our signal that we want to leave. Written into the EEA's treaties is Article 127, which outlines the process of leaving the EEA. The argument being made by the people who've shelved this case is that because Article 127 exists, when we invoke Article 50, we don't step out of the EU and the EEA, we only step out of the EU. So their argument is that for us to exit the single market and the EEA, we would also have to invoke Article 127. So, I, I, hope, I hope that's clear. Yeah. The, the re- oh, Crystal. The, 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 reason, the reason why it's kind of important is that the EEA is basically the Norway option. I mean, it, for all intents and purposes, if we step back on EEA membership, that's, that's kind of us going for the Norway option. Um, this actually went to the High Court a few weeks ago and was kicked out, I believe, in under an hour... Um, for being premature, so they didn't even really discuss it properly. They just kind of turned them away, and I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand why that happened or what that means. But the people who shelved it have said that they'll go back. Um, but the point that I always use this to highlight is, it, is a really fascinating one: is that it really depends on what the perceived intentions of the people are who are shelving these cases to be. Will, will affect the, the kind of public opinion of, of, of what these cases are about. So the people who shelved this Article 127 case, for example, have all, made, uh, have all kept themselves anonymous because of kind of the backlash that Gina Miller received for the other one, for example. Um, and so what it does is it, is it creates this interesting kind of new tension, potentially between people who are actually on the same page. Because there are a whole bunch of Leave voters who voted specifically for the Norway option, um, they, they often call themselves liberal leavers and they tend to be kind of pro-free trade, pro-freedom of movement, but they, they, they think that we'd be better in a position like Norway's. The issue comes then that these people technically should be in support of this court case because it p- potentially paves the way for us to take that Norway option much more easily. The issue is that it's perceived by many of those people that the, co- that the case is being shelved specifically to try and subvert Brexit in its entirety. 
So the people going to the court basically are saying, because we won't automatically exit the single market when we invoke Article 50, that gives us a nice way to easily slip back into the EU at a later date. So what that means is then that the people on the leave side of the vote who initially were advocating the Norway option are now saying, well, actually, if that's the reason that you're shelving this case, then we'd prefer a hard Brexit. We'd prefer no deal. So it kind of makes people who were sort of on the kind of moderate middle ground and might have had some, some common ground there, it makes one side of them double down. And it's, it's, it's the same with the, the case that Christian was explaining earlier. Um, around the revocability of Article 50, because you can make the case, and I think you can make the case from a Leave point of view, if you're, if you're a Leave voter but against you know, totally hard Brexit, you'd argue that that would strengthen our hands. Mm. But if your perception is that they are shelving this case in order to stop Brexit in its entirety, then again, you might just double down and say, well, you know what, no, we don't want it. It's subverting the will of the people again. And so it, it, it really becomes a really, really interesting split. And... Um, it, again, it, it, it kind of feels like this isn't very productive, in, in my eyes anyway. Right. <laughs> I think I've got... I mean, it, I mean the permutations here are, are absolutely fascinating. Yeah. For one, I had no idea that Article 50 did not mean leaving the EEA. Yeah. And, and actually, we don't know whether it means that either, and that's what the court case is trying to find out. So, you know, you, you could... Yeah, people are still trying to make the case saying, look, if you leave the EU, you fall out of the EEA as part of the deal. The whole point of this court case is to answer that, is to answer that question. Do you or not? And, 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 so, and so the interesting thing that it brings up is that Remain voters who have basically accepted that Brexit's going to happen and think we should just kind of get on with it and make the best of it, have perhaps sort of extended an olive branch to people on the Leave side, saying, well, if you're, if you're kind of pro-Brexit, but you don't think we should go for the fully hard option, then let's come together and fight for this EEA kind of F the Norway type option. And so they've, they've, they've reached out this olive branch and said, can we all kind of leave and remain, come together to push, this, push the government in a certain direction? And Leave voters have gone, well, actually, if your intention is to stop this whole thing, then no, let's not work together. <laughs> um, and so kind of nothing productive has come of it again because of the kind of weird political divisions that this thing's brought up. Putting politics aside, an outcome where actually Article 50 does not mean Article, article 1, 4, what, uh, 1, 127, what, whatever it is. I, I would say being pragmatic, again, just strengthens, strengthens the negotiating hand because you've got more options. Yeah, um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I'd agree. Um, but then, then again, it, again, it depends on the preference that you give to the different types of Brexit. If, you, if you're a Brexit at all costs type person, then probably both of these court cases are just getting in the way and you, you, you want us to invoke Article 50 tomorrow morning. Um, then, you know, you're going to be against them. If, if you're of the position that you're pro-Brexit, perhaps, but you don't want us to go for the fully hard option, then, then again, it, it, changes, it changes it again. Yeah, and I, th- and I think from the government's point of view, of course, from Theresa May's point of view, all this is moot anyway, because she said, we are, we are not going to be uh, subject to the ECJ, we're not going to be a member of the single market, and therefore, actually, from, their, from her point of view, the outcome of these cases is kind of irrelevant. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Wow, so when do we expect this case to re-emerge? Uh, I, I've got no idea. I haven't heard anything about it pretty much since it was thrown out. Um, as I said, the people that shelved it have said that they'll be back um, to do it again. Uh, I don't exactly know why it was thrown out. I'm not quite sure what premature means. Um, but I, I don't know. To, to be honest with you, I don't expect that it will go anywhere. Um, the, the, the Article 127 case, anyway, I suspect won't, won't end up going anywhere interesting. I think the revocability of, a, of Article 50 is potentially the more interesting one. 
Excellent. Right, well, gents, we've <laughs> once again, we've covered an awful lot of ground. Thank you very much. Where can we find you guys on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at GMCC Research. I'm uh, at GMCC underscore Alex. And of course, Pearson's is at Pearson's underscore uh, SFB. Uh, until next week, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.